And now I'd like to introduce Mr. Mickey Edwards. Mickey Edwards, a congressman for 16 years and a faculty member at Harvard and Princeton Universities for the subsequent 16 years, is a vice president of the Aspen Institute. He has been a columnist for newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times and the Chicago Tribune, and has broadcast a weekly commentary on NPR's All Things Considered. He writes an online column for The Atlantic. Please give a warm welcome to Mickey Edwards. This is a test of my high-tech abilities. Is this on? Cool. I love that. Um, well, thank you for having me here. I, you know, I, I love to come here. Uh, I uh, actually haven't been to the Phoenix area since Wednesday. Uh, I was here and went to Texas and came back. Uh, I'm from Oklahoma, so when you go to Texas, you want to come back as fast as you can. Uh, let, th this is going to be, I think, uh, if this were Monty Python, it would be, you know, now for something completely different. Because it, you, you saw the, the title of the book, I, I will say, that the, uh, the big title, you know, the parties versus the people, which, I, you know, kind of, I think that's right. And so I said, I didn't write the, I, I wrote that. It's not very creative, really. I mean, so, but, but the, the uh, book grew out of an article in the Atlantic. And the editors of the Atlantic wrote a headline on the article that's now the subtitle of the book, which was how to turn Republicans and Democrats into Americans. And, you know, I saw, I heard that, I thought, you know, well, they're patriotic, you know, they care about the country, how to turn them into Americans, I mean, that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? And they said, did you read what you wrote? And so, you know, I, what, what I want to talk about is, is, you know, what, I mean, has it ever occurred to you that there's something wrong with the system where every two years we go to the polls to take the country back from the people we just gave it to? I mean, uh, something's not working right. Uh, and so I, I, I tried to figure out what it is. And, and here's one of the good things that happened. After, after I left Congress and I went to teach, the secret about teaching, I mean, everybody, teachers want all this money, and I mean professors, I mean, great, you know, lower teachers is fine. But in, in college, you work when you're in the classroom. You're walking around and you're talking, which sounds like work, right? Uh, but the rest of the time, you have time to reflect and to think and to read. And I did. And I thought about what was going wrong and what world I had lived in, in this political world. I, uh, I ran on a party label. I was a member of Congress for 16 years on a party label. I was a member of my party's leadership in, in Congress. And... and it's kind of like, you know, if you were a worm in horseradish, to you the whole world is horseradish, right? It's all you know. It's kind of, this, this, is, this is just what is, and you never question it. And I had a chance to get back and to question it. And I started looking at what was happening. And, and so let me, I'm going to play Nostradamus for a minute. Uh, I mean, there's some things I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know who will be the next president, for one. Uh, and I don't know who will be the next person to leave the Supreme Court. And so I don't know who will be nominated for the Supreme Court. What do I know? I know that if Barack Obama wins and he nominates somebody to sit on the Supreme Court, regardless of that person's qualifications or experience or, or record, 
Every single Democrat will be for him or her, and every Republican will be against him or her. And if Mitt Romney wins and appoints somebody, then all the Democrats will be against him or her. And, and you know, Because that's the way we are now on everything. We, we believe that we have a system of government that allows us to choose representatives to come together as our country's leaders and make decisions for the national good. And what we see is no matter what it is, whether it's appointments to the Supreme Court or appointments to the cabinet or sub-cabinet or a budget plan or anything else, if your team is for it, my team is against it. You know, it's, it's, instead of a, a governing system, it's like the NFL, you know, and your job is to kill the other guys. Not referring to the New Orleans Saints, of course, when I say that. But um, So I started thinking about how this happened. And, and the secret is incentives work. Incentives work. They work in business. They work in your personal life. They work in everything you do. What you reward, you get more of. What you punish, you get less of. And we have created a political system in this country that rewards incivility, that rewards intransigence, that rewards a refusal to compromise. And I'm, I'm going to give you some examples of, of, of that. Um, I, I tried to, I'm not a historian, but I, I tried to figure out, you know, what was it that our founders were trying to tell us? Well, a couple of things. You know, one of the things, I mean, if you, if you believe in American exceptionalism, here's what it means. It's not, we're not wiser than anybody else. We're not smarter than any other country. You know, we're not taller or stronger, you know. But what we are, we had created a system of government that was different than anything that went before it. And the system of government was that we were going to be citizens, not subjects. And governments tell their subjects what to do. But citizens tell their government what to do. And they create a system that would allow us to be able to determine for ourselves whether we were going to go to war, whether we were going to pay, how much we were going to pay in taxes, what programs we were going to create. And now all of a sudden we have a system that doesn't reflect what we think. It doesn't reflect what our beliefs are. The people who are in Washington I don't know what they're listening to, but it ain't us. Because we're not wanting them to fight all the time. We got bills to pay. We got bridges to build. We got ammunition to send over. We got stuff we have to do. And they can't do it because they can't talk to each other. So what's the incentive system? Well, let me give you some examples. Talk about, I'm going to talk about the way that we govern in Congress. I'm going to talk about uh, how we elect people. And, and um, but I have to say this um, about why it matters. Why, why does it matter? Um, our founders also created a very when they, they decided the people were going to you know govern. There was a piece to that that was important. So there was there's a, a reporter for the Washington Post who wrote an article when George W. Bush was president, and he said that the president was getting ready to go overseas to you know, forget uh, where he was going or how long he was going to be gone. But he said, the president is going to step out of his role as head of government to function in his other role as head of state. 
And so you could take off his head of government hat and put on his head of state hat. And I was teaching them. And I asked my students, well, what jumps out at you about that? What jumps out at you when you hear the president's going to step out of his role as head of government to do the head of state thing? And, you know, they talked about basing rights, treaties, you know. No. The president's not the head of government. We don't have a head of government in the United States. We have separate, independent, equal branches of government. And, and that's, that's kind of an exaggeration, really, because they're not equal. Because in our system, every single major power of the government, every power, war power, who sits on the Supreme Court, who sits in the cabinet, what we tax, how much we tax it, how long we tax it, what programs we create, what we spend, what we spend it on, every one of those is a congressional power. If we've created a system that is supposed to be the laws and the rules and the war decisions, all this, made by our representatives, and it isn't working, and they're not representing us, we're losing control of our government. So I tried, I'm not a historian, I tried to figure out, you know, the root of this, and I went back and I looked, there, there was one item, one thing I've been able to find, find, that all four of our first presidents agreed on. Only one thing. You know, they, they, they disagreed about tariffs. They disagreed about whether they were pro-British or pro-French. They, they, you know, they didn't even like each other that much. What did they all agree on? Do not create political parties. They all said it. Read Washington's farewell address. Read all of Washington's speeches and Madison's and Jefferson's and Adams. They said it over and over and over and over again. Don't create political parties. And what they meant by that they had some then, but they agreed on a few things. But what they meant was don't create the permanent factions that we have today. That is always my team against your team. Don't do that. And we ignored them. So what's the result? Uh, I want to give you, uh, try to give you a couple of examples of what I mean about the fact that we no longer have control over who represents us and makes those decisions. So question. How in the world did an idiot like Todd Aiken get to be one of the two choices for the United States Senate in Missouri? How? It's easy. That's our system. There are six million people in Missouri. He ran in a closed party primary. He won. He got 200,000 votes in a state of six million but because the two parties have colluded, so not only do we, uh, do we have these closed party primaries that are dominated by the most hyperactive ideological people in their parties, but the two parties have colluded so that 46 of the 50 states have what they call sore loser laws. And with a sore loser law, if you run for your party's nomination in a convention or in a primary and you lose, your name cannot even be on the ballot in November. So let me give you a couple of examples besides, you know, Todd Aiken. Joe Biden gets elected vice president of the United States. And there's a vacancy now in the Senate. And temporarily, Ted Kaufman is appointed to fill that position. But now they have to have an election. In, in Delaware, 
to decide who's going to be their next U.S. senator. And there was a primary. Joe Biden's son, Bo Biden, is the attorney general. He's very popular. Uh, he's a good guy. Uh, and everybody, you know, thought, why don't you run, Bo? And he said, no. Bo Biden didn't run because he knew he couldn't win. Because everybody knew who would be the next senator from Delaware. Very popular. Former governor, congressman, you know, named Mike Castle. Everybody knew Mike Castle was going to be the next governor. I mean, the next senator. They had a primary. And a lady named Christine O'Donnell ran against him. And I, I will say, I don't really care whether you would have been for Christine O'Donnell or for Mike Castle or who you would have been for. That's, that's really not the point. They had a primary. She got 30,000 votes. She beat him. She got 30,000 votes. There are one million people in Delaware. It doesn't impress people in a lot of other places, but a million people. It's not tiny. And, and, and those 30,000, because of those 30,000 people, the person who would have been the overwhelming choice of the million people in Delaware couldn't even be on the ballot. Let me give you one other example. You know, I, I am, I'm really bad at math. I mean, I can't do any quant stuff at all. Uh, I hate to admit that because I was on both the budget and appropriations, so that may tell you something. But um, go to Utah. Utah has three million people. And they had a longtime senator, Robert Bennett, very popular in the state. Every poll showed he was very popular. But first they had to have the party nominating process, which they did there in a convention. 2,000 people in that convention. There were 3,500 who went. 2,000 voted against Robert Bennett. He didn't get the nomination. And because of those 2,000 people, the 3 million people in Utah could not choose the person they would have chosen to be their senator who would have all those powers I just talked about. Now, I mean, I know some, I, you know, I don't know very many of you. I know some of you, but not very many. But I know something about every one of you. If you go to buy a cell phone or a pair of shoes, you know, or shampoo, you want choices. You want choices. We want choices in everything we do, except when we choose who is going to decide whether we go to war, send our kids off to get shot, uh, what our taxes are going to be. There we allow two private power-seeking clubs to tell us, sorry, this is what you have to choose between. Why in the hell do we do that? Let me give you another example of the power of it. So, so 46 of the 50 states have these sore loser laws. All the states have these primaries, which, by the way, are not in the Constitution. They're not, you know, they came out of the progressive movement in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It wasn't part of the system, you know, we had to have. Okay, let me give you another example. This is obviously a very small group uh, that of geniuses. You are. I mean, the, you, you wouldn't be here if you weren't people who cared about government, who cared about, you know, public policy, who cared about... You wouldn't be here. So your people... Probably if I asked you to tell me about what's in the United States Constitution, you could do it. And I'll bet between all of you, you could name almost everything that's in the Constitution. 
I'll tell you one thing you wouldn't remember. Well, some of you would. Most of you would not. In our Constitution, maybe the most important part of our Constitution, every single senator and U.S. representative must be an actual inhabitant of the state from which they are elected so that Arizonans are represented by an Arizonan and Californians by a Californian. And the idea is that when you run, if I'm a candidate, I know you, you no matter, even if it's a big state. I know the economy of the state. I, I know the economic interests of the state. I know your general political feelings because I'm one of you. And you know me. You, you know my reputation. I'm one of you. Today, in 37 of the states, the decision about how to draw congressional district lines is made by the legislative majority, the majority in the state legislature, which doesn't care a bit about representation or how well you know the issues. So can I, I'd like to tell you a personal story. Uh, those of you in the front row can see that I am wearing penny loafers. Who the hell does that? I mean, I'm wearing penny loafers. I am a city dude. I am a city guy. I've never lived anywhere but a city. You know, I've, you know I, I've been on a farm once or twice, but to me, food comes from a grocery store. I mean, you know, that's who I am. I'm a Republican. And when I ran for, district, for, for the 5th District seat in, in Oklahoma City, I was the, the, we had not elected a Republican in that district since 1928. It was 74% Democrat. The incumbent had never had a close race. He'd been there for 24 years. I didn't beat him, but I came that close to beating him. He retired. I won the seat the next time. The first time since, since 1928, the first Republican, you know, in a heavily Democratic district. It drove, in this case, particular case, by the way, Republicans are just as bad. It, it drove the Democrats who ran the legislature crazy. And they had a nine-to-one majority. And because we allow the state legislative majorities to draw district lines, they redrew it. Now, I don't know how familiar any of you are with Oklahoma, but... Um, you know, it's bigger than any state to the east of it. Every bit of New England fits inside of Oklahoma. And I represented Oklahoma City, right in the middle, the city guy. And they redrew my district. They said, let's take every Republican we can find anywhere in the state and put him in his district so that we take all, take them out of all the other districts and make them safer for our party. And they took my district and from the center of, of Oklahoma, straight up, one county wide, all the way up to the Kansas border and halfway across to the Arkansas border, a big upside-down L. And I'm a politician, right? So I'm self-referential. It's all about me. Everything's about me, and I'm just full of myself. So when I was teaching, I would, I would use that example, and I would say to my students, look what they did to me. They didn't want me to win. They were upset that I won. Look what they did to me. Well, they didn't do it to me at all, did they? Who got screwed? The wheat farmers and cattle ranchers and small town merchants who were now being represented by somebody who didn't know their issues, didn't know their concerns, didn't know I, when the laws were being made in Washington that affected them, they were being represented by somebody who could not articulate their concerns and their interests. 
why were they, tens of thousands of Oklahomans, represented by somebody who couldn't speak for them when the whole idea is you're supposed to have representatives who can speak for you. It's because we let the parties decide what's to their advantage, not what's, not what's to the advantage of the American people. So I'm going to skip over a couple of because I want to get to a conversation. I, I'll just say I'm going to, I have a chapter about money, and I'm just going to quickly I'll skip over that because I always get questions about the money thing. So I'll just uh, – what do I say? I mean, I, I'm trying to be – I'm trying to be nice. Um, I, I will say it's Citizens United, you know, corporations are people, right? I mean, what in the hell were they smoking? Uh, and, uh, um, let, well, let, let me – are there any lawyers in here? Okay, good. I, wanna, uh, I am willing. I am willing to grant the possibility, and may, maybe even a likelihood, that the members of the Supreme Court know something about constitutional law. What do they not know? They don't know corporate law, because when you incorporate, that the very act of incorporation makes a distinction between people and corporations. Because you, when you incorporate, you get immunities and protections you don't have as a private citizen. So uh, I looked at this. I mean, that's one problem. Yeah, uh, and so I started to think. I, my, my proposal in my chapter on this, my chapter, did I tell you, did I mention I have a book? Yeah, I think you're supposed to say that when you write a book, you're supposed to say it kind of fairly often. Um, publisher gets really mad if you don't. Uh, so I have a chapter on, on money, and, and my, my proposal is probably the most radical out there uh, because what, what, ha- what do you all have in common when you, when you go vote? And you're standing in line to cast your vote, and you look around. What do you see? A line of human beings. No machines, no entities, only human beings. Well, if money is another way of voting, if money is another way of trying to prevail over who wins, then my proposal is very simple. There should be no campaign contributions ever from any entity except a living, well, I don't, I, I don't know about Chicago, but, you know, for the most part, any living human being. That means no corporations, no labor unions, no political action committees, no political parties, no money except from people. And that should be limited and should be transparent. So I did that. So, okay, that's the money thing. Uh, I, wa- I want to talk about what happens when you win. What happens when you actually serve in the United States Congress. So I won. And, I, and I'm there with uh, the, the people who are also the first-term members, along with everybody else, but, but the other people who were elected for the first time with me, uh, like Al Gore and Dan Quayle and Dick Gephardt. And, you know, we're all friends, and it's kumbaya, and it's just great. You know, and, and we're all one big family. We're all the American Congress, and it's our job to, to, you know, help govern this wonderful country. And that lasted about 30 seconds. And, and then immediately we, we, just, we voted on who would be the Speaker of the House. 
and all the Democrats voted one way and all the Republicans voted the other way. Uh, and then, then we voted on how to divide up the ratios on every committee and all the Democrats one way and all the Republicans the other way. And that was the way it was every single day of the 16 years I served in Congress. Every day it was divided into rival teams. So let me, let, let's assume that you, you, you love this museum. You do. I do. And you love it. And you want to do something for it. And you want to have an extension. You want to have something, you know, make it a little larger, create some more space here. And all of you got together and said, you know, except for this Turkey Edwards, most of the programs here are pretty damn good. So let's do something for them. And what we're going to do is we're going to create this new space and you would all get together and you, you would pick one of your number to, to head the group. Somebody else would say, I'll help raise money. Somebody else would say, you know, I know somebody who could help design it. And you would all sit together and say, well, how much money do we need? Where should it be located? What, the, what should we have in it? And not one of you, not one, would say, let's put all the Republicans over here and all the Democrats over here, you know, and, and come up with your rival plans. We don't do that in anything we do in our lives except how we try to govern our country. Um, but it's built in the architecture, you know. So Mitch McConnell, uh, when Barack Obama got elected, Mitch McConnell, Senate leader, Senate Republican leader, was asked, you know, what's your goal? Okay, we're, we're in two wars, right? We're, we're in war. We, you know, the economy is in a free fall. What is your goal to defeat Barack Obama? Nancy Pelosi, who happens to be a very good friend of mine, gets elected speaker. And she's asked by NPR, what's your goal as speaker? To elect more Democrats. I didn't know that was the goal of the speaker of the, of the House. I didn't know it was the goal of the, majority, of the minority leader of the Senate to defeat the other team. Why? Did you know that the, this shocks political scientists? The speaker of the House doesn't even need to be a member of Congress. You can pick somebody who is not a party hack to be there to say, my job as speaker is to make sure that we have free debate and open consideration of alternatives, which is what a democracy requires, so we can see if we can come together and do things in the national interest, not how can I beat the other guys. So um, part of it's built into the system, and let me give you some examples. Now, had we not changed things in this room, the... People here at the museum in Zocalo are very, very accommodating and very nice, and they changed the format because I can't stand still. And so, you know, we had a lectern in here. They moved it. But if you hadn't moved the lectern, I would stand here and I would say this. There's a lectern, right? That's what speakers usually stand at. And that's true when you go to a civic club, or it's true if you go to almost anything you do and you have a speaker, there's a lectern. Not in the U.S. House of Representatives. There's two lecterns. There's a lectern for the Democrats in front of the Democrats, and there's a lectern in front of the Republicans for the Republicans. And the first time I gave a speech on the House floor, because, whoo, I mean, I, I, I know I could, you know, I'm persuasive. and I, So I'm just, again, pulling myself. And so I, I, I figured 
that, that on this particular issue that most of the Republicans would be with me, so I wanted to appeal to the Democrats. So I stood at the lectern in front of the Democrats, and I, and I, you know, I started talking to them, and there was this gasp. And I swear, and then both Republicans and Democrats came over and said, no, you've got to stand over here. It's like, you're going to get cooties if you touch a lectern that the other party, no, you know. You cannot, you can't eat food on the House floor. You can't make phone calls on the House floor. So what you do is you go into a cloakroom off to the side. But there's not a cloakroom. There's a Republican cloakroom way over here in the corner, and there's a Democrat cloakroom way over here in the corner. They don't even have soup together. You walk into the wrong one, and it's like you stumbled into a tryst. You know, it's just like, what are you doing here? It's the way we've set it up. We've set it up to be constant war. Let, let me give you one, one further example about what's the effect of this. What's one of the principal elements of the American Constitution that puts the power in the people's representatives? It's the separation of powers. What happens to the separation of powers when you think in terms of party instead of in terms of your national responsibility? It means if a president of the United States, like a president of my party, said, I, I will decide whether or not I have to obey the laws that I just signed. And Republicans say, hey, that's fine. You're our guy. You know, our job is to, is to keep you from getting sacked. You know, not, not to keep a check on you. It works both ways. You know, so, so the separation of powers falls apart. Because Democrats are not going to criticize a Democratic president and hold his feet to the fire, conduct an investigation of, of his administration. The Republicans are not going to do that, you know, uh, about a Republican president. You know, so that's another element. You know, I think the topic uh, here is something like, are political parties good, you know, for, um, for America? Well, yeah, they are. Let, let me just say that. They are. It's not a problem of parties. In a democracy, you have to have a variety of views and real exchange of views. And you have to have something you can organize around where you have common views. Our problem is not that we have political parties. Our problem is that we have surrendered control over the system to our political parties. So um, I, one more thing, and then, then I'm, I'm going to tell you... I, it, it, so I'm really, this is really a downer, right? I'm actually very optimistic. I am really optimistic. And I'll tell you why. The revolution has begun. The revolution has begun. Forty percent of American voters today call themselves independents. USA Today had an article that said that the American people are fleeing from the political parties. So in 2006, this, this, by the way, I give the same speech everywhere, so it's not because I'm in Arizona, but you may draw a linkage here that just happens. But in 2006, the people in Washington State said, we are sick and tired of this, we're not going to tolerate it anymore. And they went to the polls and they changed their system, and they created open primaries. 
and they took away from the legislatures the ability to redistrict, and they created, you know, redistrict, independent redistricting commissions, as you know, in Arizona, so you gotta be careful about the rules and how you structure those things. But, but, they said we're not, we're gonna have elections that are not dominated in party interest. So then, that's one state. Then 2010, California did it. The people in California, the, in both Washington and California, the Republican Party was opposed to these. The Democratic Party was opposed to them. You know, the party hacks were terribly opposed to this because what happens when you have a system of, of open primaries? By the way, that, that's a bad term. It's not an open primary. What it is, it's a general election with a runoff. And in those systems, everybody is on the same ballot. Everybody. Maybe three Republicans, maybe two or three Democrats, maybe a Libertarian, a Green. And every single registered voter in that state is allowed to vote on all those choices. And if nobody gets over 50%, you have a runoff between the top two. And even if it's the same party. Here, let me give you an example of what's happening right now in California. There is a district in California, which is a very liberal Democratic district. There's never any chance they're ever going to elect anybody who's not a liberal Democrat. And the two, they, they threw together two, uh, this is interesting, threw together two incumbents because when California changed the system and said, we're not going to let the parties draw the lines for your benefit, 12 members of the California delegation, one-fourth of the California congressional delegation retired rather than go through a system that gives all the voters a choice. And anyway, so now we have this race between Howard Berman and Brad Sherman, who are both liberal Democrats in a liberal Democratic district. In the old system, who would win? The old system, the one who would win, would be the one who could make the strongest case to the hardline left. I will never compromise. I'm with you. I'll fall on my sword. I'm not going to budge. You know, I'm going to stand up for our ideology. Republicans do it the same way. You know, I'm going to stand up for my ideology. I will never compromise. Now what happens? Who's going to win? The one who can say, these are my principles, but I'm also going to talk to the Republicans. I'm going to talk to the Libertarians. I'm going to talk to the Greens. I'm going to, I'm going to Try to represent the entire community. What a strange idea. You know, that I'm going to represent not just the, the ideologues, but the community at large. So that's already started. I, as you know, Arizona is getting ready to vote on this, and I didn't come here to tell you how to vote. You know, uh, but the other thing that's harder is changing the system in Washington. USA Today had another article that over 40 of the U.S. senators vote with their party 95% of the time. I'll tell you, this has nothing to do with your U.S. senators or who might be your next U.S. senator or with your House members. If you've got a member of Congress who votes with their party 95% of the time, kick them out. Their job is not to work for the party. Their job is to listen to the people and to sit down and work with people across the aisle because you need to be Americans, not Republicans, not Democrats. You know, wear, if you want, if you're showy, I'm not, I never do it, but if you wanted to, wear a flag pin, you know, on your lapel, uh, or whatever you do. Not an R, not a D. They're two private clubs. We don't allow the Elks Club to do it. 
We don't allow the Rotary to do it. Why do we allow these clubs to do it? So anyway, so that's it. Uh, I'm going to stop. Any, any questions and all, but, but thank you for hearing me out anyway. Thank you so much. We're going to move on to questions from all of you. There are two of us going around with microphones. If you could do us a huge favor and meet us in the aisle, because we are recording this. This will be available on our website by Sunday, so you can share it with all of your friends who could not join us tonight. Jennifer over there has the first question. Oh, my name is Don. Thanks, Mickey. I think I speak for all of us to say that it's a very informative talk. Thank you. I have a slightly different take on why we're divided, and it's not just parties, it's history. Uh, we've always been two nations, North and South. We fought a war among ourselves over that particular issue. You're from the South, so you understand that absence. No, I'm from the West, but I understand, yeah. Okay, but you represented the South. No, Oklahoma is a Western state. Okay. But, yeah. It's just north of Texas, as I recall. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which has its own special history, it as does. you know. <laughs> so anyway, the question is this. I just want you to comment on what you think is the anti-government movement which is a part of the sentiment that was always in the South that created the secessionist South and the Confederacy. And that's why we're divided, because there's a resurgence of that sentiment, and it's represented in, in Congress, which is why it's dysfunctional. Yeah, I, I think there, there clearly is that, that division. Uh, but we have had times when that division existed and we didn't have the dysfunction that we have now. So, so you, you give me a chance to expand a little bit. You're right. There, there are, uh, there's polarization. Polarization and partisanship are not the same thing. We've had times where we polarized, but we were still eventually able to find a compromise and come together because we didn't have a system that washed out anybody who was willing to compromise. But you gave me an opening here, and I'm going to take it, and it's outside of the, it's outside the scope of the book. But it's in the scope of my next book, which I'm writing. So, I mean, it's, um, we, there are other, there's another problem, and it, and it comes to, um, I do not want to say, that the problem is the people. But there are some things uh, in our public schools. You know, we don't, what, what, what kind of a society do you need to maintain the, the government that the founders created? You need, you need a, a, a place where you go to school and you learn civics. You listen to Sandra Day O'Connor. I've been with her a lot of times. You know, you teach civics. You teach understanding about your form of government. You teach critical thinking. You know, this program about, you know, this I believe, try it. I tried that. This I believe. Well, wait a minute. Am I really sure about that? No. I tried this I believe. Down deep, this is what I believe. No, I'm not so sure. I finally decided what I believe. I believe in doubt. Not being so damn sure you're right about everything. And being willing to listen to other points of view. We don't do that anymore. A friend of mine named Bill Bishop wrote a book called The Big Sort. Well, you know, and, and everybody's writing about this now. We, we have created a society of people who only hang out with, listen to, talk to people who think the way they do. And they all watch each, either Keith Olbermann or Rush Limbaugh. By the way, I, I don't advocate violence very much. The only, the only violent thing I've ever said in my whole life was to take Keith Olbermann and Rush Limbaugh and put them in a paper bag and drop them off the bridge together. That's, that's, that's the only thing. But, but, but we, we've got these people who you and your friends, not you, I mean, this is a special group, outside of this room, people and their friends listen to the same people, talk to the same people, you know, and don't, the minute they hear a counter-argument, 
they're either booing and hissing or they're forming the rebuttal in their minds instead of listening. We got to change that. We, so part of it is in the people. In the people. We do have to change that. I'm sorry. Question over here on your left. Hi. Um, Richard Ross. It was great uh, hearing you tonight and thank also you. on Wednesday night. So thank you. Um, my question was is... It, was it similar? Did I do it was, different things? No, it was okay. very similar. But, and different format, but it, it was yeah. great. Um, you said the word populist the other day on Wednesday night. Yeah. And um, my question is, with the ability, with the technology that we have today, have we outgrown the Electoral College? Should we be focused? I know it may not be exactly in your book, but um, what are your views on that? Well, well, first I'll say something about the technology. I mean, because, and, and I'll get to, the, to your thing about the Electoral College. It's a danger. We, we have a problem. Our young people today, who are the ones who are mostly online all the time, do know more, you know, than we ever knew. But they also know more that's not true. We ever knew, because the filter is gone. Uh, you go over to the Cronkite School, they talk about this all the time. Uh, and and we, we have got that problem. I, I have mixed feelings about the Electoral College. Um, I, I think it still serves a useful purpose. And the useful purpose it serves is this. Um, if you had a system that was only, only, you know, by the urban centers, the candidates would spend all their time I, I don't know if I can say this in the Phoenix area now. I was, they, they would spend all their time uh, in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Houston. You know, now you're, what, the fifth or sixth largest city, so maybe they'd spend it here, except uh, I, I don't know, but because uh, the state's not that populous. But, but the idea was, and it came out of a compromise, but the idea was that now if you run for president, you can't just think about what do the urban centers want. You know, you got to think about not just the people who want lower prices on beef, but the people who raise the beef cattle. You know, you got to think not only about the people who drive their cars, but also the people who produce the oil. So, so one of the things that, that does happen with the Electoral College, because now what do you see? It's not all in New York and Los Angeles. It's in New Hampshire. It's in Nevada. You know, and, and candidates have to go out and listen to a bigger part of the population. You know, and so I, I think it still serves that useful purpose. Question on your right. Okay. Hi, my name's Steve Muratori. I write the Arizona Eagletarian. Uh, it's a blog about Arizona politics. And I wanted to ask you, uh, you certainly uh, went into great detail describing overall in America the uh, partisanship issue. Yeah. However, Arizona functionally is not locked up in a partisan battle between Democrats and Republicans. Effectively, Arizona is dominated and has been dominated for many years by the Republican Party. So I, I believe that um, you glossed over the connection between the um, the proposition that is before us for the general election on so-called open elections and um, the issue, and I believe um, I'd like to ask you, uh, do you understand the concept of false equivalence and how it, that might not be actually going, what's going on in Arizona? Yeah, go on about false equivalence. <clears throat> okay. Uh, 
By, by saying Republicans and Democrats are both at fault? Yes. And yeah. in Arizona, Arizona government, that's just not the case because Democrats have not had the opportunity, uh, perhaps, give them the same power that the Republicans have, they may, and I'd be willing to say yeah. they probably would, but the fact is they have not been. Let me tell you what I told Representative Kavanaugh the other night at the Morrison Institute, uh, who, by the way, really said some dumb thing. I mean, don't trust that guy with math. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I should not eject myself into Arizona politics. Um, even, even if the, the, the Republican Party dominates and you have a race, it's just like Sherman and Berman in California, and you have a race where everybody's on the ballot and everybody can vote on it, and you're going to have a district that's going to vote for a Republican, and maybe a conservative Republican, the one who is going to win because they're both competing for that vote. The one who wins is going to be also the one who can get votes from the Democrats, who can get votes from Libertarians. You know, that's the one who's going to win, the one who can get votes from Greens, because they will, you know, you reach out to the broader thing. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Maybe Arizona defies human nature. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite possible. I mean, I, you know, I'm willing to say, but let me say, before you, be, don't put Arizona in that box. Because Gabby Giffords, who's a good, close, personal friend of mine and has been for eight years, Gabby ain't a Republican. Kirsten Sinema's not a Republican. Greg Stanton's not a Republican. You're wrong. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's not what Arizona is. It may be the way it looks to you, Question but it's not the way it looks to me. Question over here on yeah. your left. I'm Regina Best. Can you talk a little bit about how we might compel our politicians to cultivate civility? Yeah. Please. I'll do it nicely. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's what I said about the reward system. Um, Richard Murdoch in Indiana beat Dick Luger by promising I'll never compromise, and he attacked, you know, Luger for talking to uh, Republicans, I mean, to Democrats, and, and, and he won. The way you change it is when people do negative ads, even if it's people you like, and they run negative ads, you say, you just lost my vote. And because, you know, once you hear something about people in politics, because of the nature of our system, they're, they're not timid. They're not afraid they're going to get assassinated. They're not afraid a plane is going to fall on their house. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of you. They're afraid of the voters. You know, and when you stop, when you start punishing people who run nasty campaigns, and you tell them that, say, wow, I've always been for you, but I saw those commercials. If that commercial runs one more time, you know, I'm not going to support you. You know, when you do that, when you change the reward system and you punish bad behavior and reward good behavior, you'll get good behavior and not bad behavior. I mean, I, I, the people have to do that. People just say, we're not going to tolerate that anymore. Yeah. We've got time for one last question before we move on to happy hour. We have um, Smoke, a Books, uh, Smoke a Bookstore is selling copies of Mr. Edwards' book. So please keep, pick up a copy on your way out. Um, we have 
drinks being served. And now our last question. Hi, my name is Ben Montclair. Um, my question is about a, it's kind of a, there, there's a whole different overlay, an ideological overlay to this country. Um, more than just red and blue, people are believers um, uh, or non-believers, it seems to be uh, somewhat of a contest um, that uh, is danced around a lot. What would you say right now is the relationship between church and state? I think the relationship uh, constitutionally is uh, you, under the Constitution, are guaranteed the right to practice your religion uh, you know, openly and, and fully and, uh, and advocate other people, you know, uh, being part of that. But you don't have the right to tell other people that they have to abide by those rules. The people in people of faith and people in the secular community, because I also have a house in Massachusetts, uh, people in both the secular community and the religious community, you know, really try very hard to uh, enforce their views on other people. Uh, and yeah, that's, it's not right. You know, it, religion is a personal thing. And, and I know when people say, my religious values guide how I vote or what I do, that's fine. That's their personal choice. It's when it gets into, I'm going to use the legislative process or whatever, you know, to try to uh, force you to abide by the tenets of my faith that may not be the tenets of your faith that we begin to have a problem. You know, there, there are, here's the, the number one thing to know. There are 310 million of us. We're all equally Americans. And, and we, our system is not designed to impose the will of the majority on the minority. It's designed to protect the right of the minority to live as it wishes and believe what it wishes. Uh, and so, you know, there is nothing in the Constitution that says church and state are separated. But the idea is that freedom of religion means you don't have to abide by the tenets of somebody else's religion and they can't force you to. So, I mean, I guess that's where I said. I really wanted to cut this very short because I, I know what it's like to be told. Okay, it's the last question. And happy hour doesn't start until you shut up. <laughs> So I hereby shut up. Thank you. Thank you very much.